This is Emmanuel Today, taking steps toward God's possible in your life. It's now time for you to sit back and prepare for insights on your walk with Christ. Let's join today's message right now. So if I had to title my message, I would title it this way. You know, we can know the master, but we don't always know the master plan. You know, you can love and trust Jesus. You may have walked with him for many years, but we don't always know the master plan, what God is doing behind the scenes. I gave my life to Christ when I was 11. I'm now 63 years old. That is 52 years of the faithfulness of God, of unfolding chapter by chapter of who He is and His goodness. And so I was really drawn to this story. The first thing that I want to see in Elijah's story is how his faith was tested. Now, I was going to give you a little of the backstory, but I have a feeling you know it. But I'll do it anyway because you've never heard it in a Scottish accent. It's totally different. At this point in Israel's history, they're at the worst place they have ever been spiritually. I mean, if you think about the fact that they've had kings like King David, the greatest king that Israel ever knew, then his son Solomon, they've had many people who poured their lives into the people of Israel to bring them closer to God, but that is not where we are here. Now you have King Ahab and Queen Jezebel on the throne. And Jezebel has introduced the worship of the prophet Baal. So there's 450 prophets of Baal. The thought of Israel worshiping Baal, it's almost more than I can think about. How could these people who were brought out of Egypt, who were, God walked through the wilderness with them for 40 years and brought them into the promised land, and now the person who's their king is King Ahab, who did, Scripture tells us, did more wrong in the sight of the Lord than anyone before him, and then his wife, Jezebel. So, there's God's man there, Elijah. He's a prophet, and he decides in a third year of drought, you know, there's not been a single drop of rain, and there's a price on his head. King Ahab is furious with this man. So, one day, Elijah shows up and challenges him to remember the big challenge on the top of Mount Carmel. So, the 450 prophets of Baal come. The children of Israel are there, and King Ahab is there. And the challenge is basically this, as you know. We're going to build an altar. You're going to slaughter a bull and put it on top of the altar. And then I'll let you guys go first. And basically, what you're going to do is you're going to ask your gods to consume the offering, and then I'll come after you. Because this is what Elijah said to the people, 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah challenged the people, how long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow Him. If it's Baal, then follow Him, but make up your minds. So, the prophets of Baal go first, and they call on their God, and here's it's going on for hours and nothing is happening. So we read this in 1 Kings 18, 27. By noon, 
Elijah had started making fun of them, taunting, call a little louder. He is a god after all. Maybe he's off meditating somewhere or other, or maybe he's gotten involved in a project, or maybe he's on vacation. You don't suppose he's overslept, do you, and needs to be waked up? They prayed louder and louder, cutting themselves with swords and knives, a ritual common to them until they were covered with blood. You know, when I read that the first time, probably when I was about 12 years old, I found that a horrifying picture. Can you imagine 450 prophets of Baal on the mountain slashing themselves with swords and with daggers? That's what their God demanded of them. Do you know that we are the only ones who have a God who bled for us? I find that so profoundly moving. So many religions in the world demand that their followers would give their lives or slaughter themselves. We are so loved that we have a God who said, no, no, you don't have to shed your blood. I will shed my blood for you. So finally, it's time for Elijah. And this is what we read. When it was time for the sacrifice to be offered, Elijah the prophet came up and prayed, O God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, make it known right now that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I'm doing what I'm doing under your orders. Answer me, God. Oh, answer me and reveal to this people that you are God, the true God, and that you're giving these people another chance at repentance. That's what it was all about. It wasn't just some kind of show on the mountaintop. It wasn't like Madison Square Garden for God. It was all about giving the people a chance to repent. And you, you will remember what happened. Fire fell from heaven and consumed everything. I mean, what a phenomenal spiritual victory. It was amazing. Elijah had stepped out in faith, and God had shown up. The people had fallen on their knees and said, the Lord, He is God. So surely, this was the beginning of revival. I mean, it must have been overwhelming. First of all, you've watched all these crazy prophets cutting themselves and yelling and screaming, but then you see God show up in such a way that you literally fall on your knees. But a few verses later, the same day we read this, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. But what happened? How do you go from some phenomenal miracle of God showing up to being at the place when you're like, you know what, I, I don't even want to live anymore? Why, after watching God do something so miraculous, did He now want to die? I think the last two verses in 1 Kings 18 maybe give us a little clue. Soon the sky was black with clouds, a heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, why would he run there? That was where the palace was then. That's where Ahab and Jezebel reigned. So, why was Elijah going there? Because he believed that one of two things were going to happen, I believe that either Ahab and Jezebel would fall on their faces and repent and call out to God for mercy, or the children of Israel would throw them out. But instead of that, they all went home. 
And not only that, the message that comes from Jezebel to Elijah is this. Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this, and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as one of those prophets. I mean, nothing had changed. This tested Elijah's faith to the very limit. Elijah was worn out. Have you ever just been so tired in your faith you're ready to give up? We read this, when Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. He left his young servant there and then went on into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom bush. Interesting that he let his young servant go. You know, Elijah didn't have a servant because he was a wealthy man. Elijah had a servant because he was a prophet. Leaving his servant behind was Elijah's way of saying, I'm out of ministry. I'm done. I don't get it anymore. I am walking away I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that, where you feel somehow that God failed you or you failed. You know, I remember reading just that little thing where Elijah said, Lord, take my life, and thought back to the night when I prayed exactly the same prayer. Sometimes in your Christian life, you come to the place where you think, I don't understand any of this anymore. I, um, I was brought up in a tiny fishing town in the west coast of Scotland, a little fishing village, and I, was, I just thought my dad hung the moon. He was just tall and had this beautiful singing voice, and, and he would always encourage me to do things that my mom said, oh, don't do that, and my dad would be like, oh, she can do it, she can do it. I would climb trees and climb up the inside of old Scottish castles up the chimney, and I just thought my dad was the most amazing man in the world. But then my dad had a massive brain hemorrhage that changed his personality, and he went from being loving and kind and funny to being very frightening. I don't know if you've ever experienced someone who's had a brain injury. You know, you don't really know if you're going to wake up with Dr. Jekyll or with Mr. Hyde, what one's going to be there that morning. And the last day I ever saw my dad alive was when he attempted to bring his cane down on my skull. But instead, he fell, he lost his balance, he was paralyzed down the left side, and he was taken off that day to what was called, in those days in Scotland, our local lunatic asylum. He was 34 years old. But he managed to escape, and he drowned himself in the river behind the hospital. And I believed with everything in me that it was my fault. The fact that my father seemed to hate me in the end made me think, there's something wrong with me. You know, it'd be interesting if we had time to hear every one of your stories, because we all have a story, and we all have things that happened in our life, and particularly when you're young and it doesn't make sense, and you think, what did I do? There must be something wrong with me. I grew up with such a sense of shame. And when I gave my life to Christ at 11, I was told, not only is Jesus your Savior, you get to make Him Lord of every area of your life. 
and you have a heavenly Father watching over you. And I remember at 11 thinking, wow, I've got one more chance to get it right. Whatever my earthly dad saw in me that made him hate me, my heavenly Father's never going to see that. I'm going to be the perfect Christian if it kills me. And it nearly did. I mean, I just worked so hard. I went to seminary in, in, in London to become a missionary in India, but God redirected my steps. I ended up co-host of the 700 Club for five years. But here's the truth. Inside, I was still the same scared, broken little girl. You know, you can hide in ministry. You can hide in drugs. You can hide in alcohol, and it's more apparent to people. But you can hide in ministry, and they just think you're really dedicated. But sometimes it's just because you don't know where else to go. I didn't want God to ever stop loving me, and I was determined that I was going to be perfect. And when when my life eventually fell apart one day, I had a nervous breakdown on live television. I do not recommend it, by the way. (laughs) And by that evening, I was in the locked ward of a psychiatric hospital, and I was 34. And I prayed Elijah's prayer that first night. Didn't get in the bed, pulled the blanket off the bed and sat in the corner of the room, and I said, Lord, please take my life. If there's an ounce of mercy left in your, in your heart for me, please take my life. So, here's, here's what I want to ask you. How does God respond to us when we're done with Him? What does God do when we're just like, you know what? I don't get it anymore, and I'm, I'm done with you. Here's what we read in 1 Kings 19, 5 through 6. We read this, and this is back to Elijah. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked in hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Now think about this. This is God's prophet. This is the man of God in the nation. He has just seen God show up in the most dramatic way. All the prophets of Baal were slaughtered. And Elijah is now in the wilderness saying, I am done. Take me out of here. What does God do? Lunch and a nap. Not what are you doing here, you loser? Not what's wrong with you? Not where's your faith? Not how could you do this? No. Wakes him up and says, hey, I've made you something. Eat this. Here's some water. Now, take another nap. Do you know that God understands our humanity, our frailty? We want to be like superstars for Jesus, and He just wants to care for us. God had some strong things to say to Elijah, but he knew Elijah couldn't hear it yet. He was too tired, too discouraged, too broken. So he made him lunch and a nap. And then we read this in verse 7. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him. The second time, the writer identifies the angel as the angel of the Lord. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on the Old Testament, helps us understand more about who that was. This is what he writes. In verse 7, the visitor is called 
the angel of the Lord, an Old Testament title for the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When Christ appeared in the Old Testament, it was called a theophany or a Christophany. He appeared to Abraham. But do you get how mind-blowing that is? That Christ would appear to a broken prophet and make him lunch and then tell him, you know what? Rest again or this journey ahead is going to be too much for you. If you have come in today and you are tired and broken and ready to give up, I want you to know that God understands that and He loves you. The fact that you're here speaks volumes. You could just have stayed in bed, but you didn't. You came. Even if your wife had to torment you into coming, you're here. If your husband had to drag you by your ponytail, you're here. If your parents had to threaten you with no allowance, you're here. But you're here because God wants you to know He loves you. God wants you to know He understands your humanity, and He understands your questions, and you can tell Him the whole truth. I spent so many years saying what I thought were the right things to God, and that time in the hospital when I'd had it, and I remember after I'd prayed, you know, God, I'm done, I remember just saying to Him, I've had it. I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. I quit. I've got nothing left to say. And I felt as if God said, I know, and I'm here. And I've been waiting for you to stop talking. So I could tell you, I see you, and I love you, and I'm here. Christ is a redeemer in the deserts of life when nothing makes sense. And the thing that I think is amazing is Christ doesn't give you something. He gives you himself. Now that Elijah had eaten and rested, he was heading to the only place where he thought he might get an answer. It's interesting to me that a prophet who's ready to quit heads to Mount Sinai, the mountain where Moses met God. And I've wondered, why did he go there? Was it because he, it was like, I don't know what's going on, but I know God showed up there on that mountain and spoke to Moses. And it's one of the reasons why I believe so much that church is so important, that we gather together. Because sometimes you're just so ready to be done with it all. But Elijah walked 40 days to get to that place where Moses encountered God. And when you are tired and ready to give up, get yourself here to a place where you know God shows up. Come in your pajamas if you have to, but just get here. Because somehow when we're in the presence, all together, brothers and sisters, worshiping God, we remember what's always true, no matter what might be true for the moment. We remember who He is, not just who we are. You know, it's interesting that Elijah made his way to this cave, this cleft in the rock. Many commentators believe it's actually the same place where God hid Moses. Remember Exodus 33? As my glorious presence passes by, 
This is God speaking to Moses. I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So Elijah is in the crest of the rock, the cleft of the rock, and God invites him to go out and stand in his presence. And Elijah doesn't go out at first. You remember what happens? Windstorm that tore the rocks, then an earthquake that shook everything, but God wasn't in the earthquake. Then a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And then there was the sound of what is often translated as still, small voice. But if you look at the original Hebrew, it's actually more like a gentle whisper. Have you noticed what, what you do when somebody whispers is you lean in to listen. And that's when Elijah came out of the cave and stood in the presence of the Lord. And that's when God said to him, Elijah, these are my words, you know the master, but you don't know the master plan. I've been working all along in ways you can't see. There are 7,000 people who've not bowed the knee to Baal. You think you're the only one? You're not the only one. I am working. See, sometimes when we don't understand what God is doing, we think that God doesn't see us. He doesn't care. God has never taken his eyes off you. God told Elijah that always been a plan in place. Sometimes I think we want to put God in a box where we understand, but God won't live in a box. Let me move to another mountain where it shows that in Christ, even when we've been tested, when we are tired beyond belief, in Christ, we will be triumphant. This mountain is a really interesting experience. It's in Matthew 17. Jesus took Peter and the brothers James and John and led them up a high mountain. His appearance changed from the inside out right before their eyes. Sunlight poured from his face. His clothes were filled with light. Then they realized that Moses and Elijah were also there in deep conversation with them. Now, I wonder how they knew that, that it was Elijah and Moses. I mean, they didn't have Instagram or Facebook where they could look up Moses' profile picture to see what he looked like. I mean, the Spirit must have revealed that. But suddenly, Elijah and Moses came face to face with Christ, who had always been the rock that sheltered them. I wonder sometimes why just Peter, James, and John went with them. You know, they could all have gone. And I don't know the answer, but I, I wonder whether, you know, because Christ has this ability to look right into your heart and see where you're at, see what's going on. And I wonder if Peter, James, and John were just in a place where they were more kind of all in. And I mean, they would go on to make mistakes. Peter would make a lot of them. But in his heart, he wanted to be all in. And I wonder, too, if that's why on that night when Christ was betrayed, when he needed those who loved him to be close, if that's why he took these three men, because they were all in. I don't know where you are right now in your faith. You might be in a place where your faith is being tested as it's never been tested before, and you don't understand what God is doing. Or you might honestly be in a place where you're just tired. You're just worn out. 
You're like, Lord, I am done. Maybe you've faced, you're facing physical challenges that don't shift, and you just don't know what else to do. But I want you to hold on, because in Christ there is always victory on the way. You know, in 2 Corinthians 2 ver- verse 14, we read this, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. We're living in a time in our culture where, and have you noticed how angry people are? I mean, if you, even on social media, I've never seen a time where we're more polarized as a nation, even among the church. And I believe it's such a tactic of the enemy to get us so distracted and angry with each other and arguing over things that don't really matter in eternal ways. Because one of my Scottish friends was asking me about all the different people who'd been in the White House and what I thought. And I said, you know, whoever's in there, I'm going to pray for them. But it doesn't matter who's in the White House, God is on the throne. He is the ultimate one who is in authority. He is the one who says yes and amen. And I just think what a privilege it is these days to serve a God who gets us, who doesn't expect us to be perfect. You know, so often I think the church should be the place where we are the most transparent, but so often it's the place where we hide the most. You know, you you argue with your husband on the way here, You call him things that are not in the New Testament. (laughs) They may have been in the old, but they did not make it into the new covenant. And then you walk through the doors and people are like, how are you? And you're like, oh, I'm so close to Jesus, I'm nearly flying. (laughs) You get to show up as you are. You get to be loved as you are. There is compassion for who you are. And because of that, we get to be all in. When I think of the mercy, the compassion of our Father, that God refused to live without us, that He would come and personally visit a broken, tired prophet and feed him and tell him to take another nap. This is not a judgmental God who just waits to whack us in the head for making one more mistake. This is a Father, like none of us have ever known, who welcomes us into His presence. You can learn more about the various ministries that Emmanuel offers and see Sunday services and Wednesday prayer services live every week. Check out emmanuelcc.org for details. Please be sure to tell others about this broadcast that they could enjoy next week at this same time.